Gabby Petito never goes outside. <laughs> July 2nd, 2020. Exactly one year before a life-changing road trip would begin, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundrie announced their engagement online. On Instagram, a picture of their first date. Gabby writing, Brian asked me to marry him, and I said yes. One day later, Brian posting, Till death do us part. I'm so happy the answer was yes. Then there was the van. The 22-year-old and 23-year-old purchasing a vehicle to take them across country, a white 2012 Ford Transit van. New van means new adventures. And it would all begin on July 2nd, 2021, from the hamlet of Blue Point in Suffolk County on Long Island, where Gabby and Brian were visiting her parents, celebrating her brother's high school graduation. July 4th. On the road, in their new home, outfitted for camping and cooking, the couple snapped photos at Monument Rocks in Scott City, Kansas. Then to Colorado. Two nights at the campsites at the Great Sand Dunes National Park and Reserve with sand surfing. Next stop, Utah. After leaving Colorado and getting stuck in a dust storm, the couple spent three nights in Zion National Park, hiking and pitching a picture-perfect campsite. From Zion to Cedar Breaks National Monument to Bryce Canyon National Park. The couple taking pictures and videos near the edge of the cliffs. I love the van. A few days later, Gabby posting photos from Mystic Hot Springs then hiking barefoot through Canyonlands National Park. After that, 12 days go by with no posts. Thursday, August 12th, Gabby posts photos from a trip just days before, a hike around the delicate arch at Arches National Park. Gabby noting she waited in a short line for someone to take their photo. Later, camping in Devil's Garden. But August 12th, things would take a turn. Currently doing 45 miles an hour, zone through here is 25. Oh! Subjects just hit the curb. Officers called to reports of a disorderly conduct encounter Gabby and Brian in Moab City, Utah. What's your guys' names? Gabby. Gabby, Brian, okay. Brian tells police Gabby got frustrated because she was trying to start a blog. She had been working on it for hours. He says they got into a fight when he got in the van with dirty feet. She just got worked up because we were trying to Gabby explains to officers she has anxiety and OCD. Some days I have really bad OCD. Brian is determined to be the victim and pleads with officers to not press charges. I'm fine and I love Gabby. I, I hope she doesn't have too many complaints about me. <laughs> Police ask the two to separate for the night. They take Brian to a hotel and give Gabby the keys to the van. The next day, Brian posts photos tagged in Arches National Park and then in Moab. A week after the altercation, Gabby posts, but it's unclear where the couple is in terms of location. She also posts her first and only YouTube video for her blog. It appears to chronicle the couple's relationship and travels. On August 25th, Gabby posts her last Instagram post, writing, Happy Halloween, 
posing with a pumpkin in front of a mural outside The Monarch, a venue in Ogden, Utah, north of Salt Lake City. And then there's this. Jen Bethune says this video was taken in Teton County on 27th August around 6 p.m. And it shows a van that looks identical to Gabby's, but police have not confirmed it is hers. Two days later, on the 29th of August. My boyfriend and I picked up Brian. A woman claims to pick up a hitchhiker from Coulter Bay Village, south of Grand Teton. He approached us asking us for a ride because he needed to go to Jackson, which we were going to Jackson that night. This happened about 5.30 p.m. After seeing social media videos, she now identifies that person as Brian. I'm hoping this can help someone identify him. On August 30th, Gabby's mother receives a text from her daughter, but believes she didn't send it. I just believe she's in danger because I, she's not in touch with us. And she could be alone somewhere. She could be stranded somewhere in the wilderness. And she needs help. Two days and more than 2,300 miles later, on September 1st, police say Brian arrives in Northport, Florida, with the van, but without Gabby. She's reported missing by her parents on Long Island on September 11th. That same day, the van is processed for evidence at the home the two shared with Brian's parents. Brian does not talk to the police or to the FBI. Then on September 15th, Brian is named a person of interest in the case. The police chief of Northport pleading with the Laundry family to speak to them. At the time, they do not realize it, but Brian is not at home. The next day... Two people went on a trip, one person returned. And that person that returned isn't providing us any information. Police and Gabby's family begging for the Laundry family to speak up. We beg you to tell us. As a parent, how could you let us go through this pain? The Petito family even pens a heartfelt letter to Brian's parents. As a parent, how could you put Gabby's younger brothers and sisters through this? That evening, Brian's sister speaking exclusively with Good Morning America. Obviously, me and my family want Gabby to be found safe. She's like a sister and my children love her. And all I want is for her to come home safe and sound and this to be just a big misunderstanding. Then on Friday, September 17th, the Laundries call police to report Brian is missing. They claim they last saw him Tuesday the 14th. He said he was going to the county park. The family attorney says they searched for him there on Wednesday, then drove his Ford Mustang back to their home on Thursday morning. However, Eyewitness News has confirmed Laundry's car was back in the driveway on Wednesday. On Saturday, there were dual searches for two missing persons. Authorities scour the massive 25,000-acre county park known as the Carlton Reserve, north of the Laundry family home in Florida, to no avail, all weekend. Across the country, the FBI, the National Park Service, and local law enforcement agencies search the mountainous terrain of Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming, search it for clues about what may have happened to Gabby. Then, on Sunday, the heartbreaking news. Full forensic identification has not been completed to confirm 100% that we found Gabby, but her family has been notified of this discovery. Authorities say law enforcement agents have found a body, and they believe it's Gabby.
Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, before I dive in, and I do have a lot to share with you, as this is the final episode in the series. Well, the final episode for now. And how fitting it's dropping in October, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And it's also my 100th episode. I really can't believe it. And I've also hit more than 2 million downloads, which is just incredible. So thank you to all you lovely lot for listening and keeping me company as I've been diving into the murder of Gabby Petito and all the other cases I've covered thus far. It's only possible because of all of you and I truly appreciate you. Okay, my last thing to mention before we get started is my usual trigger warning. This episode and series may be triggering and angry making. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so what did you think about the last episode? What a fantastical conclusion to reach in this case, hey? You know, on the face of it, the police review and conclusion might seem okay, but anyone who's professionally curious and digs deeper, or who understands coercive control and policing well, will at best conclude it's a sleight of hand, and at worst it's a deliberate act to mislead and distract with more than a dash of poor us in the police syndrome in the mix. And that's not okay, given that Gabby was brutally murdered, and this was a crucial opportunity to intervene and to learn. The we are busy, everyone expects us to be perfect, and we can only act on the information presented at the time trifecta just doesn't ring true in this case. And talking of facts and evidence, because they are important, there was zero evidence presented to support these final statements. Interestingly, the report omitted the data detailing how many 911 calls Merb City Police dispatched officers to on the 12th of August 2021. Officer Pratt mentioned one other call that he attended afterwards, and let's not forget that four officers were there for 75 minutes. So for me, the evidence speaks for itself, and we all saw it with our own eyes on camera. It really wasn't that busy, and there was no sense of urgency. Like I said, Officer Robbins even drove Brian to the hotel, chit-chatting away about women. Now, by comparison, when I worked in the Metropolitan Police Service in London, the Met received a 999 domestic violence call-out every six minutes. That's what my team evidenced back in 2001, and that doesn't include all the other 999 calls. And now it's most likely a call-out every three minutes. Now that's busy. Also, saying that law enforcement can only act on what's presented is egregious in this case. To me, it's like a final rub of salt into the wound. But playing devil's advocate, one might counter with, well, at least they did a review, right? I mean, that is a positive. Even if nothing else it spotlights is the lack of understanding and priority afforded to domestic abuse and coercive control, and the fact that the reviewing officer didn't understand the law or Merb's own manual and how entrenched misogyny is that it's not even identified as an issue in the review. So yes, they have a huge amount of learning to do. And like I said, I hope they grab the opportunity with both hands. And talking of learning, so too does the National Park Service need to learn. Now, the National Park Service didn't conduct a review nor did they take part in the review of Merb City Police Department. Now, I don't know if they were asked to contribute, 
but there's no mention of it in the review. And I think that if they were asked, I'd expect to see the email request to the MPS to be included and listed as an exhibit on page 45 of the review. Also on page 99, there's what's called an additional attached exhibits page, and there's no reference included there either. Now, each agency should conduct a single agency review, or at least one takes the lead and the other agrees to share the information. But that didn't happen here. And so this review of Merv City Police Department is limited. So at the very least, Park Ranger Holes should have been asked to provide a written statement, given her lengthy interaction with Gabby. And it's also worth underlining that MPS still have not released their body-worn camera footage. And I do have concerns about the National Park Service. This is not the first time problems with an investigation and lack of transparency have been raised. You know, some time ago, I was interviewed by an investigative journalist called Catherine Miles for her book, Trailed, One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. It's about the horrific murders of two skilled backcountry leaders, Lolly Winans and Julie Williams. In May 1996, Lolly and Julie were found murdered at their remote campsite in Virginia's Shenandoah National Park, and the case is still unsolved to this day. I was aware of the horrific and brutal double murder, and I've spoken out about it before, and the possibility of it being linked to Kathy Thomas and Rebecca Dowski's murders, which happened in 1986, ten years before. They were brutally murdered on the Colonial Parkway, and I've spoken extensively with Bill Thomas, Kathy's brother, about the case. Bill's an amazing advocate for Kathy and Becky, and you'll hear his voice on Crime Analyst very soon, along with Catherine Miles, the author of Trailed. So that's a heads up for a future episode that's to come. And here's some homework in advance. Read Catherine's incredible book. Catherine's not only an investigative journalist, she has many strings to her bow. She's also an outdoors expert too. And she really contextualises the National Park Service in her book. And I want to share with you a few things to consider. Firstly, when Lolly and Julie's bodies were discovered, initially the MPS said it was a bear attack. They then changed their minds and said it was a murder-suicide. Well, even to the untrained eye, their injuries alone revealed it wasn't a bear attack. Secondly, the women were brutally murdered. They were bound and gagged. Their throats had been slit. They were found in their sleeping bags, which were zipped up over their heads. Also, Julie had been sexually assaulted and a vibrator had been placed at the scene. So no, this definitely wasn't a bear. And it certainly wasn't one of them that killed the other. And it's absurd for them to have said so. It's also victim-blaming. Park authorities were also quick to conclude and announce that it was, in inverted commas, an isolated incident. Now, those who know me know that this is one of my pet peeves. In fact, it just makes me rage. And to conclude this before an investigation had even taken place is asinine. It's hugely problematic for so many reasons, but moreover, it's normally used to tell women that it's nothing to worry about. But of course, for every woman, when a woman's found brutally murdered, it's everything to worry about. And what's also important to underline is that this was on Memorial Day weekend, so it's a long weekend when more people, more women would be visiting the park. So it sounds to me like it was more important to keep the park open and say there's nothing to see here, rather than protect women 
and keep visitors safe. In other words, they put women's lives at risk, and that's not okay, because that was the message that was repeated over and over, that visitors to the park were not at risk and that investigators at the site found something that led them to believe that this was an isolated incident. And that simply wasn't true. In fact, Catherine's book details an alarming catalogue of cases where women were stalked and murdered by men in the national parks. I'm talking about women literally being hunted by men in the national parks. And each time, each case was called an isolated incident. Also, in a 2002 study, rangers revealed that they didn't report crime information in order to, in inverted commas, protect their image, or because, in inverted commas, no one ever asked them to. So most of the MPS don't collect data, and there's no national system, which is shocking and outrageous to me. In fact, only about a quarter of its 393 units have adopted any kind of standardised incident reporting system. The rest use their own ad hoc system, or none at all. They also don't record people who disappear in parks without a trace. And according to Catherine, the MPS can't even say for sure how many people have gone missing on its 84 million square acres public land. In addition to this, the majority of victims that are raped and murdered in national wilderness areas are female. And sadly, the list of females killed in the backcountry continues to grow. So this whole isolated incident notion is wildly misleading and inaccurate and it puts women at risk and it has to stop. Women's lives are more important than image and reputation. I mean, imagine if it were men being hunted and killed like this. So the book Trailed allowed me to understand the MPS from another perspective. And you'll hear Catherine and I talk in micro and macro details about the case on Crime Analyst. And we also want to enlist your help. So the points that she made about the MPS were not lost on me. And I do get it, violent crime is a specialism. But given the amount of people who use the parks and the number of women who are disproportionately harmed by men, the MPS must prioritise women's safety and call in experts to help with cases and to train their rangers properly, just like I did in Yosemite, which was excellent. And they should be more open and transparent when things go wrong. And I know it's not easy, but it's really important, particularly to get trust and confidence of the public to increase. And let's face it, Melissa Hull's body camera footage is really important in all of this. And given the fact that Gabby and Brian are dead, there's absolutely no reason why this footage should be withheld. I hope it will be adduced as evidence and examined as part of the lawsuit Gabby's family have brought against the police. I'd certainly be very happy to analyse it and understand what it reveals. Okay, so let's go back to the timeline. I'm going to share a timeline of key events, and you heard a lot of the timeline in the clip at the top of the episode. I also covered it at the start of this series through the lens of Gabby's social media. Now, one of the important posts to me that I did talk about from Gabby's perspective on her Instagram account was the engagement proposal. And you also heard about it in the clip at the top of the episode. I want to draw your attention to Brian's post that he published on his Instagram account on the 3rd of July, 2020. This is what he wrote in the caption. Love of my life, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. My biggest fear is that one day I'll wake up and it will all have been a dream because that is what every second has felt like since the moment we found each other. 
Till death do us part, or until I wake up. I'm so happy the answer was yes. Love you, honey. I want to tell you about my sponsor, Factor. Factor makes healthy eating easy, and health and fitness starts with good food. Every fresh, never frozen meal is chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So, what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Fuel up fast with Factors, restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat whenever you are. I've had the chicken parmesan and the turkey chili and zucchini, and they're delicious and I highly recommend them. Factor is flexible for your schedule. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Now, they've done the maths and Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 and use code crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. That's code crimeanalyst50 at factormeals, F-A-C-T-O-R, factormeals.com slash crimeanalyst50 to get 50% off. I've already detailed Gabby's post and how understated and underwhelming it was. Well, this is what one of Gabby's friends, Nikki Passanati, said about it. When Gabby felt a connection with someone, it was always a strong one. She never gave half of herself to somebody. It was always all of her. Everything happened so fast with Gabby and Brian. And it was like he wasn't there and then he was. And then he was, you know, a huge part of her life now. They were getting engaged. The news of her engagement wasn't, it was never like broadcasted. She posted a photo and did like a few dots and then underneath wrote, he asked me to marry him and I said yes. And it wasn't like she posted a photo of the ring or anything. She did it like quietly, which is strange. I remember talking to my cousin Steven, the three of us were close and we're talking about how strange the whole thing was. But she seemed happy in the photos and videos she posted. She seemed so in love and we were just happy she was happy, but something didn't seem right from the beginning. So that's really interesting what Nikki says. I mean, this is meant to be one of the happiest days in people's lives, right? And yet Gabby chose not to share it with her nearest and dearest. And weirdly, Brian posted about his biggest fear and until death do us part in what's meant to be a celebratory post. To say it didn't bode well for the couple is an understatement. It really was a prophetic post. And so a year to the day, they leave New York in the white van on the 2nd of July, 2021. Now I've detailed where they went through Gabby's post on Instagram and you heard more in the clip and so I'm not going to repeat that again. And we know that on the 12th of August, Gabby and Brian are stopped by the police following the 911 call. On the 13th of August, they both published a number of posts on Instagram. On the 17th of August, Gabby checks into a hotel, the Fairfield Inn in Salt Lake City, and Brian flies back to Florida. The reason? 
to allegedly help his father move some of his and Gabby's things out of a storage unit. I mean, that seemed odd to me. And at this point, Gabby goes dark on social media. Now, she could have posted because she was on her own between August the 17th and 23rd, and there was one odd post on the 19th of August about the plastic lunch garbage on the picnic table. Here's a reminder of what she posted. Almost immediately after telling at bizarre underscore design underscore how happy it made me to see that people were truly respectful of the park, I watched some guy leave his processed pre-packaged plastic conglomerate of lunch garbage on the picnic table. Sad face emoji, hashtag respect our national parks, hashtag MPS, hashtag parks project, hashtag live sustainably, hashtag van life, hashtag live plastic free. So as I said before, that post piqued my interest. It immediately jumped out at me as being out of sync with the rest of Gabby's Instagram. If Gabby did write and post this, it's very in tune and aligned with the sorts of things that Brian was posting. And if it were her, it feels like she's almost seeking his approval or favour, trying to get back in his good books. That's what it feels like to me. And Gabby also posted her first and only YouTube post on Nomadic Static on the 19th of August. It's eight minutes long, and as of today, it has 6.9 million views. So that's probably what she was working on while she was on her own at the hotel. On the 23rd of August, Brian returns to Utah. And on the 24th of August, they check out at the hotel. On the 25th of August, Gabby speaks with her family and said they are in Grand Teton, Wyoming. And it's also the day Gabby posted her last Instagram post, the one where she's holding a pumpkin, and the caption reads, Happy Halloween. Now, a lot happened on the 27th of August, and I want to break it down. Gabby and Brian are witnessed arguing at the Mary Piglet restaurant in Jackson Hole. Gabby was upset. Brian was observed as being belligerent to staff. Take a listen to this clip of Nina Celiangelo, who posted on Instagram about what she saw at the time. This is a clip of her talking with ABC7NY. Yeah, it was um, our first full day of um, vacation in Jackson Hole. We were at Mary um, Piglet's, which is a Mexican restaurant in Jackson Hole. And it was Friday, August 27th. We got to the restaurant around one o'clock. And it was within, the altercation took place within the first hour of us being there. So um, it had to have been before two o'clock. And in as much detail as you feel comfortable sharing, what did you notice about their interaction with each other? It wasn't so much um, their interaction with each other. Um, I didn't really take notice to them at all until they um, got up from their table and they were, like I mentioned in my video, abruptly leaving the restaurant. It looked as though they were like almost getting kicked out and it was never so much. It wasn't necessarily between them, it was more so Gabby abruptly leaving the restaurant crying and Brian was um, just evidently really upset, pissed off. I would say, I would say Gabby was upset. He was angry and he was um, just being very temperamental towards the restaurant staff. And it's fine if you, you know, aren't sure. Do you know what the source of his anger was or, or why she was upset? 
No, and I don't want to say because I don't want to fabricate anything. I've mentioned that it just, I mean, in the moment, you know, when it was happening, we didn't know who these people were and we didn't know what was going to happen. But in that moment, I was thinking to myself, it seemed as though, um, I, I don't know, you know, you think worst case scenario, like, what was something wrong with their food? Were they displeased with the service? It still doesn't. Um, that that still doesn't seem like that much anger is worth something like that. So it made me think that he, it seemed as if he was embarrassed and he was angry about being embarrassed. I I got the feeling that they were asked to leave or that they were being kicked out the restaurant. Cause it was, like I said, very abrupt. They got up very abruptly and just like, you know, walked out the restaurant and she was really upset. She was crying. And he immediately like went to the hostess stand and was just, um, yeah, he was just like going in on the hostess, on the hostess and the waitress. And then eventually the manager, um, he exited and entered the restaurant, like on four different occasions within five minutes. Um, he would walk out, walk back in, walk out, walk back in. At one moment we thought he, um, we thought they had walked out for good, um, or he had walked out for good and he actually left for like 10 minutes and then came back just to like start the fight all over again. It's really interesting. And you, I just, this is just a confirmation question. You said that you and, um, I'm not sure your partner were sitting next to them. Yeah, we were sitting directly next to them. There's two tables, um, right by the front door, which is also the exit and also where the hostess stand is. Um, and yeah, we were within like (laughs) not even a foot of each other. Wow. And you know, you kind of said in detail, like how he was acting toward the staff. Is there anything that you specifically overheard him say? No, he was just being really aggressive. I couldn't hear um, any verbiage or actual words, but it just his body language. And you could obviously just you I could hear him, but I couldn't make out his words. He was um, I would say almost it was almost like he was screaming. He was um, really angry. That's the best way I can describe it. He was just very visible, like visibly angry. Um is some, it was like a dog with a bone. He wouldn't drop it, whatever it was, he was pissed off and he would not let it go. Um, so much so that he would be asked to leave. I guess the, the, um, restaurant staff was kind of not telling him what he wanted to hear, or maybe they were asking him to continuously leave and he would leave and he would just re-enter within like a minute and just, he just kept coming back and he wouldn't drop it, whatever it was. He, um, was just getting angrier. Got it. And these might be, you know, granular details, but if you remember at all, how did the two of them look? Did they look normal for all intents and purposes or was anything off? Like I said, I didn't really take notice, notice to them, you know, in the midst of them eating, or I just saw, just took notice of them when they were leaving. And in that moment, Gabby reminded me a lot of how she seemed in that body cam video of the cop. She just seemed distraught. She seemed really upset. She was emotional. She was crying. Um, she seemed kind of embarrassed. Um, at one point she walked back into the restaurant on one of his attempts to walk back in. I think she followed him and was trying to, I think, get him to leave and like drop the situation. It's, I think she was being like apologetic towards the restaurant staff for his behavior. Like she just kind of wanted to diffuse the situation. She was like, I'm sorry, come on, let's just go. But she was visibly upset. She was crying. And um, that was really it. Um, and he he was just, it, you could feel his temper. He was, he was angry. He was pissed off. And in the midst of um, everything you're describing, at any point, did they stay and have a meal? Did you see that they ate or you weren't, you, you didn't know? 
I'm not positive. Um, all I remember is that they were sitting at the table directly next to us. We were eating. We were in the middle of our meal. We weren't paying attention to anybody else around us. We only took notice of them when they got up and were leaving. Um, I want, I'm almost positive that they were eating. Um, because I remember questioning, did they even, did they even pay? Did they even, um, get the bill? Did they, you know, it was so, it was so fast. They just, um, our waitress was also their waitress. We shared a waitress and she was visibly upset. So I know that she was, um, she was a part of it. Um, she had to have, she has to, she has to have more information than I do. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm sorry if any of these questions are redundant. I just want to make sure I cover all my bases here. At no point did you speak directly to them? No. And you're saying that it seemed that they were kicked out of the restaurant when they left, when they finally left, did you see how they left? No. Um, I just saw them walk out the front door. Gotcha. Um, are there any parts to this that, you know, I haven't asked you anything that you remember that came to you? I know you said that um, your partner kind of, you know, woke you up and was like, I remember like why Brian's face is so familiar. Um, are there any other small details that maybe, you know, have come to you over the past couple of days? No, um, it just happened so fast. It was like in the span of like 10, 15 minutes. Um, yeah. I mean, it's something you don't, you definitely don't see every day. Um, it just, uh, was kind of startling. Uh, just, I remember feeling bad for her and I remember looking across the table at Matt, getting his attention to kind of, you know, tell him what was going on. And I just remember telling Matt, like vividly, I remember telling him this guy is freaking me out. His demeanor, the way he was acting, um, how persistent he was, uh, it, he, he freaked me out. And this is my last question. What made you, um, post the, the, the story once you guys put the pieces together on the fact that you had seen the two of them? Just, I was kind of like, and that was very in the heat of the moment when I posted that Instagram story, it was within like seconds that we pieced it together. So I didn't really think about it before I posted it. Um, it was mainly just for my friends. I just kind of, you know, thought it was this crazy story. And um, I did have hopes that maybe it would get out there and it could help, you know, people piece together the story. I certainly wasn't expecting it to blow up to the degree that it did. Um, but yeah, there really wasn't much thought before posting it. It was just like, oh my God, this happened. We were there. We saw this. We witnessed this. Like I have to get the word out there. And um, that's kind of how it happened. So that's interesting to me. It seems that they had a row and Brian was angry. He was pissed off, she said. And the way that he was behaving freaked her out. The fact that she said he wouldn't let things go, that he was persistent, and Nina could feel his anger really resonates with me. I call it a white fury that comes off someone, and it's in keeping with Brian's behaviour. And certainly it's in keeping with some of the footage of Gabby and Brian that was recently released on the 19th of October 2022. You see, for me, that's another important piece of the jigsaw, and many of you have asked me about it, so I'm going to tell you a bit more and break it down. Let's talk makeup for a moment. What's your daily makeup routine? Are you an out of the door with a messy bun, a mascara vibe? Or are you coiffed to the max? Or maybe you're somewhere in between like me. Thrive Cosmetics beauty products are certified 100% vegan and cruelty free. 
made with clean, skin-loving ingredients, high-performance and trademark formulas, and uncompromising standards. Thrive Cosmetics' bigger-than-beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchase, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are emerging from homelessness. It's a beauty brand and a philosophy that goes beyond skin deep by empowering women. Did you know the first product they launched were false eyelashes, which was motivated by the fact that cancer patients lose their eyelashes? How amazing is that? I love their new sheer strength lip plumping peptide gloss. It gives you a visibly fuller-looking, luscious lips without fillers or uncomfortable stinging sensations. It's also ultra-hydrating, and there are 10 shades to choose from, which enhance your natural lips, six shines and four shimmers. Support and empower women and treat yourself or a loved one. Thrive Cosmetics is a luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 20% off your first order. On the 27th of August, the white van Gabby and Brian were travelling in was caught on camera entering a Whole Foods car park. Now there's no audio to the clip and so I can't play it for you, but I put a link to it in the show notes and you can watch it for yourself and I highly recommend that you do. Now what we see on camera is the white van slowly pulling into the car park and parking up. A few minutes pass before Brian emerges from the driver's side. He gets out and then bends down to check something or grab something and then he really slams the car door and flicks his wrist over it with such force. For me, it's a blistering anger, a white heat that you feel, and it's a demonstration of his power and aggression and anger, and it's a clear message to Gabby. So for me, that's congruent with what Nina, the Instagrammer, described. Brian goes to the back of the van and he gets a hat out. After some time, Gabby then appears. She pulls up the sleeves of her long cardigan and follows him back to the driver's side and stands directly behind Brian, holding the door. It's not clear what Brian's doing, but she stands there, right behind him. And for me, it's reminiscent of a child. A child who's been told off and is sheepish and coy and wanting to be close to their parent and fears abandonment. Now, as they walk towards the store, Gabby's trying to walk close to Brian. And it almost looks like she's trying to link arms with him. But he makes no attempt to reciprocate. In fact, he keeps his hands dug deep in his pockets. He's wearing a baseball cap and sunglasses. Gabby isn't wearing a hat or glasses and her hair is long and flowing. She's walking close to Brian and every now and then her arm brushes his. Her arms are folded across her upper body and she has two tote bags on her arm. They look like they're empty and likely for the shopping. Gabby's whole demeanour is one of trying to make herself small. Brian's is the opposite. His is expansive. Hands dug deep in pockets And as he walks, his sandal-clad feet turn out and his strides are confident and almost brash and forthright. As they get closer to the camera, he raises his right hand and wipes along his nose with it. It's pretty gross. And they disappear from view as they enter the store. We next see Gabby on camera appear at the end of an aisle inside the store. The timestamp says 
2.18pm. Now that's important. Nina, in her news clip, said that they were at the Merry Piglets having lunch before 2pm. So again, this is consistent and the timing lines up. When Gabby reappears in view of the camera, she's carrying a small brown paper bag. Brian's behind her. Noticeably, Brian's still wearing his sunglasses indoors. He then follows her down the next aisle. Gabby then reappears, followed by Brian. They don't appear to be in a rush. They stand and stare into a fridge, whilst others mill around them. Gabby turns and goes down an aisle behind them, and Brian seems unsure what to do and which direction to go in. He walks one way, and then the next, and then follows her down the aisle. Gabby then reappears and goes down the next aisle. Brian follows. They're ambling in Whole Foods. They don't seem to have a list that they're checking, and they don't seem to be in a rush to be anywhere else. You see, that stands out to me. I'll compare it to myself. Now, when I go shopping, I'm on a mission. I have a list in hand. I go into the store and I pick up those items. I walk with purpose. Sometimes I might deliberate over a product choice and then I head off to pay. I'm in and out as quickly as possible. I'm purposeful, intentional, and I'm always against the clock. Gabby and Brian are the exact opposite. They're literally snaking up and down the aisles in a leisurely way, Gabby leading and Brian following. Gabby stops in front of what looks like a drinks fridge. She yawns. Brian taps her on the side of the arm and walks off in the opposite direction. He looks like he might be looking for something, but it seems very lacklustre. He then asks someone who works there a question and they head off down an aisle together. Gabby is next clocked at 2.25pm in the cheese section. A few men cross her path. She's browsing. Brian reappears by her side and she does eventually pick up a cheese and then puts it in one of her tote bags. Gabby walks off in one direction and then Brian walks off in the other. It's clear to me that Gabby's the one doing the shopping and carrying the bags. That's instructive to me too. Gabby's the one picking out items for them, and she's putting them in her bags. He seems disengaged, and at no point do I see Brian offer to carry the bags. And Gabby has three bags at this stage, and he's just ambling around with his hands in his pockets. At 2.28pm, it looks like they're heading off to pay, and then they reappear on camera and leave the store. They both get back in the van and leave. From start to end, the video is about nine minutes long. My last few observations are that they don't seem very connected to each other, and the slam of the van door, which was a standout moment, gives away Brian's mindset. Now you might say, no big deal. So what? Brian slammed the door. Well, the thing about slamming the door was that there was no audio, but I could see the amount of force and aggression he put into it from his body language. It goes back to what Nina said. Women notice these things. We have to. It's what keeps us safe. And this isn't a micro-expression of violence. This was a deliberate and intentional act. Also, when a man does this and he's an abuser, he's putting you on notice. That explains to me now why Gabby was right behind him when he was bending down at the driver's side door and why she was trying to walk close to him. She was most likely trying to de-escalate things, trying to calm him down. Women do this all the time, particularly with abusers. We become experts in it. Also, on the 27th of August, a message was received by a friend from Gabby's phone via Snapchat saying she was heading to Yellowstone. 
And on the 27th of August, Gabby's mum, Nicole, received an odd text from Gabby's phone about Stan, who was Gabby's grandfather. The message read, Can you help Stan? I just keep getting his voicemails and missed calls. Now Gabby never called him Stan, so it seemed odd to Nicole. And lastly, due to all the interest on social media about Gabby's case, Jen Buffoon looked back at her camera footage from when she and her family were at Grand Teton County and they captured a white van on camera at about 6pm on the 27th of August. The van is parked over to the side of the track. This sighting was hugely significant and thank goodness for social media and Jen Buffoon for going back into her footage to check. So Gabby and Brian's Whole Foods trip, which was captured on camera on the 27th of August, was the last time Gabby was seen alive. Which is why it's so significant to me. And it fits with what Nina witnessed at the Merry Piglets just before. And then there's the same day later sighting of Gabby's white van, which was close to where Gabby's body was eventually found on the 19th of September. And when you factor in the two odd text messages Nicole received from Gabby's phone, the first one about Stan on the 27th of August, and the second on the 30th of August, which I'll tell you about momentarily, well, the timings of these two text messages stand out to me. And now, the 27th of August assumes even greater significance. Interestingly, and I mentioned it in an earlier episode, when I did my own preliminary timeline and sequence of events in this case, at the very beginning of my analyses back in 2021, I made a note that the 27th of August was most likely the date that Gabby was murdered by Brian. So now, with all these new key pieces of information, including new video footage, I feel even more confident that it was most likely the date that Gabby was murdered by Brian. Then there's Brian's post-offence behaviour. Brian spoke at length with his parents on the 28th of August. Now, I don't know the detail of that call, but the fact that he spoke with them at length, well, I believe it's a significant call. According to Gabby's family lawsuit against the Laundries, that's when they believe Brian told his parents that he'd killed Gabby. And on the 29th of August, well, take a listen to this. Hi, my name is Miranda Baker, and on August 29th, my boyfriend and I picked up Brian at Grand Teton National Park at 5.30 at night at Coulter Bay. Um, I'm hoping this can help someone identify him because I saw him from TikTok, which then made me call the authorities, and um, my boyfriend and I have been in contact with a bunch of different people to help um, piece together different parts of this case. We picked him up at Coulter Bay, like I said, at 5.30. He approached us asking us for a ride because he needed to go to Jackson, which we were going to Jackson that night. So I said, you know, hop in. Um, he hopped in the back of my Jeep. We then, you know, proceeded to make small talk. Um, but before he came in the car, he offered to pay us like $200 to give him a ride, like 10 miles. So that was kind of weird. Um, he then told us he's been camping for multiple days without his fiance, he did say he had a fiance, and that she was working on their social media page back at their van. So this is really important information from Miranda, where she said her and her boyfriend picked up Brian and that he was on his own. 
Also, he offered to pay the couple $200 for a short trip. She said it was around 10 miles, and they found it weird that he offered so much. So yes, it is weird. That's a lot of money. And to me, it sounds like he was overcompensating. And it also stands out to me, particularly because on the 12th of August, he told the police he had no money. Also, on the 29th of August, Gabby was going to speak with her good friend Rose, as it was her birthday. But Gabby never called. Rose said she wasn't initially concerned about Gabby not calling. She understood that her friend was on a road trip. But as the days went by, and she didn't hear from Gabby, she became more and more concerned. On the 30th of August, Nicole Schmidt, Gabby's mother, received a curious text from Gabby's phone. It read, No service in Yosemite. Nicole told the DailyMail.com on the 15th of September, and I quote, That text was not from Gabby. I know it. Take a listen to this. During Gabby's travels, she had been staying in touch with her friend Rose Davis. Rose was expecting to hear from Gabby on her birthday. So we talked, and my birthday is August 29th, so we decided, call me then. But no birthday call or text came. I honestly didn't think anything of it when she didn't text me or anything, because she's traveling cross-country, and, you know, once it got uh, it got later into it, around, like, like, 8th and 9th of September, that was the point where I was like, she would have called me. Why haven't I heard from her yet? What Rose did not know was that on September 1st, Brian Laundrie was back in Northport, Florida. He had driven the van there, and he was alone. The Petito family knew none of this, but they had already become alarmed when they stopped hearing from Gabby altogether, and her cell phone had stopped working. Did you ever reach out to her boyfriend to figure out what happened and where, where your daughter is? We can't comment we're on not, that. We're not commenting on that. But Gabby's mother did reach out to police. It was actually Friday the 10th that I decided to call police because mm-hmm. I had had 10 days, 10, almost 11 days was enough for me to not hear from my child. And um, I got the runaround. Nobody wanted to report her missing. Um, she's an adult, she's traveling, but as a mother, I said, it's not like her. Finally, that Saturday, I, um, went personally to Suffolk County, fifth precinct. And now this is where we are. Gabby Petito was officially declared a missing person on September 11th, just over two weeks after her last Instagram post. As the nation remembered so many lives lost 20 years earlier, the Petito family focused on one life, that of their missing daughter. We're looking for her and only her, not the van, not the two of them, just just her. Keep your eyes out and we'll find her. A woman disappears on a cross-country trip with her boyfriend in a van. On Monday, September 13th, 2021, the story of Gabby Petito's disappearance hit the news. The parents of a missing woman from Long Island need help finding her. Gabby's mom and stepdad, Nicole and Jim Schmidt, held up her photo for reporters. Do it. Uh, Gabby's 22 years old. Um, 
She's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful soul inside and out. Rose Davis was devastated to see her friend's picture on TV. My mom called me into her room and uh, Gabby's face was all over the news. And uh, I kind of just went into shock. So it was out of character for Gabby not to be in contact with her family and friends. That's important baseline behaviour. However, the police didn't take the initial report seriously, and that's a major problem. Then on the 30th of August, Brian uses Gabby's card and puts $1,000 worth of gas on it and travels the 2,300 miles back to Florida. Brian arrives at his family home on the 1st of September, and the family speak with Steve Bertolino, their attorney, and they put him on retainer on the 2nd of September. Now, the money side of things, that's interesting to me. You see, now I know that Brian did have money. Yet, as I said before, he didn't offer to put himself or Gabby in a hotel, which is what the police asked them to do. He also jumped on a plane back to Florida whilst Gabby stayed in a hotel. He shopped in Whole Foods, which isn't cheap. And then he used Gabby's card for gas, having killed her. I mean, on the face of it, it just doesn't add up. But his behaviour does as a coercive controller. I mean, having killed Gabby, he then uses her money to flee the scene, leaving her body there, and he slithers back to Florida. He doesn't return any of Gabby's family calls. They're frantic. They want to know what's going on and they want to know where Gabby is. He doesn't speak to the police on his return and he doesn't own up to what he did. Instead, Brian lawyers up and then goes off on holiday with his family. These are all deliberate choices that he made as part of his post-offence behaviour, and it's revealing about him. He doesn't do the right thing. He could have, but he chose not to. The same with the police stop. It's clear to me that he only thought about Brian, me, myself and I. And it's also in keeping with the fact most coercive controllers are narcissists. It's all about them, and it ends when they say it ends. Brian's family reported Brian missing to police on Friday the 17th of September. They told police they'd last seen Brian leave home to go hiking in the Mayakahatchee Creek Environmental Park in Northport on the 14th of September. However, at the beginning of October, attorney Steve Bertolino provided an updated timeline and said the Laundry family believed their son left one day earlier on the 13th of September. Steve Bertolino said Chris Laundrie went to the park the night of the 13th of September to look for his son. He also added that both Chris and Roberta Laundrie returned the next day and they saw their Mustang there and it had a notice on it for being parked overnight. Steve Bertolino said that the Laundrie parents brought the Mustang home on the 15th of September so it wouldn't be towed and that they believed their son would find his own way home. Interestingly, during the 16th of September news conference, a reporter asked Police Chief Todd Garrison, do you know where Brian Laundrie is right now? And Garrison responded, yes. Now, it's important to say that the police were never in a room with Brian at any point. He was also never spoken with or put under surveillance despite the circumstances. So for me, it's alarming that when asked, the chief said that he knew where Brian was, when clearly he didn't. And it was the next day that the Laundries reported him missing to police. And yes, for me, it's highly unusual and suspicious for a person of interest in a potential homicide case to go off hiking. 
and for his family to think that that's normal and okay under the circumstances. And then they report him missing several days later after picking up the car that he used to travel to the park, the Mustang. Like, how did they expect him to return? Or perhaps they knew he wasn't coming back. Either way, the Northport Police Department said that they were treating the investigation as two missing persons cases, adding that, and I quote, they understand the community's frustration, we are frustrated too. The department also noted that, and I quote, whilst Brian is a person of interest in Gabby's disappearance, he is not wanted for a crime. I mean, how frustrating and angry-making for Gabby's family. Brian was the only person who knew what happened to Gabby, and then he disappeared himself. And I want to underline that Brian was not missing. You see, for me, all the indicators are there that point to the fact that he took himself off deliberately and intentionally. And I'm sure we're going to learn far more in the civil suit. So from that point on, the manhunt ensues. And it was Brian's father, Christopher, who found his bag with the letter and the notebook in it on the 20th of October. I can also tell you that it's highly unusual for a family member to participate in a search for their loved one and then find key evidence and be the one to hand it over to law enforcement. It's really quite extraordinary they decided to go out and search and after all the other searches yielded nothing and they go to search that exact area on the 20th of October and they're the ones to find Brian's bag which contained the note and there happens to be a film crew present. Coincidence? I'm sure you'll make your own mind up, but I don't believe in coincidences, and I'm sure we'll learn so much more from the lawsuit. What is evident to me is that Brian wanted to end it on his terms, and he left his note with his words and his version of what happened. Now, I've covered the letter in previous episodes, and nothing I've found to date has changed my mind about my analysis of it. In fact, I feel more confident that the letter, his version that he penned, was absolute BS, particularly now I've seen the area that he killed her in, and the fact that he could have got her help at any time. I mean, that is just the fantastical part about the narrative that he penned. And I also want to give you another context and share with you another case, and that's the case of Claudia Brenner and Rebecca Wright. Claudia and her partner Rebecca set up camp near a remote stream in Pennsylvania's Michaud State Forest. Unbeknownst to them, they were being stalked by a man called Stephen Roy Carr. He repeatedly fired a rifle at them both. One round fatally hit Rebecca, piercing her liver. Claudia was shot five times. One round passed through her arm, one lodged in her head and the other in her neck. Incredibly, she walked for over three hours, mostly in the dark, until she could flag down a car. Unbelievable. She walked for three hours in that state, so that provides another context as to why Brian's story makes no sense at all. I do wonder, however, whether Brian was trying it out. I mean, trying that version out to see how it sounded. As I said before, there are other notes. And of course, I'm curious to read them and to establish whether they're the same or whether they say something different. Either way, what I believe is that Brian was manipulative and deceptive, and of course, it's just more evidence of him putting himself front and centre. And it talks to narcissism and the fact that he was self-serving. Well, this is what Rose Davis said about Gabby and also what she said about Gabby's relationship with Brian when she was missing. 
Bumble from for friends, and it uh, was, uh, you seem so cool. I want to be your friend. Can we be friends? And I was like, of course. And from there, we started hanging out every day. And kind of weird to say I met her on Bumble for friends. People always laughed at us for that. Uh, but hey, glad she came into my life. And, and how was your friendship? What did you do? Well, our favorite thing was this ice cream shop that unfortunately I just found out yesterday closed down um but that was our first go-to and then other than that we were pretty like just kind of chilling all the time you know just hanging out and talking and she came everywhere with me we uh we joked around and said she was my uh uh, uh, uh what do we call her uh emotional uh, service human because <laughs> everywhere she went just to like just always cheering me up you know and, and how soon after you first met her did you meet Ryan? um it was about the second time we hung out i went over to her house either second or third time and he was hanging out there and yeah, that's when i first met him and what was their relationship or what is their relationship thank you um on the outside, it's, he's very charismatic, so it seems very loving, and there's no doubt in my mind that she loves him, and I know that, and from how I've always seen it, he loves her. Um, of course, like any relationship, there was arguments, and she come stay at my house when there was arguments just to, like, get away from it, you know, and I didn't ask most questions, because if she wanted to tell me, she could tell me. You know, um, how many times did she come and stay with you? I couldn't give a number, but I mean, within the first year, I mean, I want to say at least seven to ten times. Do you remember any one particular incident that she was particularly upset with? Yeah, well, we were supposed to go line dancing, it was ladies' night, and her drive is about 30 minutes to me. And halfway there, she realized her uh, ID was missing. And so it caused a really big argument because Brian just didn't want her to go out. And it was a jealousy issue. And um, it caused a huge argument between them. And she came over and cried and just talked to me about what happened and told me all that she was comfortable telling me. Did you feel that their relationship was getting more problematic. I do believe that their relationship as they kept going on was getting a little, yeah, problematic. I mean, just seemed like there was more and more arguments and everything she did, I feel like, you know, he thought was wrong and even as she said in the body cam, he didn't even support her with her blog, which that's not what a fiancé or boyfriend does. They support you with anything you want to do and that in itself, you know, made me feel like it just continued to get worse. So there were problems that were escalating prior to the road trip. Brian's coercively controlling and jealous behaviour was the problem. I want to just take a back step and go back to that post that Brian published about the engagement proposal. You see, for me, this really stood out. And it still does, out of everything that I've assessed and analysed to date. You see, for me, this is the biggest tell of all, and here's why. 
On what's supposed to be a happy celebratory moment in your life, a joining of two hearts, two souls, two minds, two lives, a coming together, a union, why would you write about your biggest fear and death? Well, I'll tell you why. Losing Gabby was Brian's biggest fear. That, for me, is leakage right there. And it's exactly the reason why he proposed. It was his way of locking her down. And the to death do us part, well, this again was leakage. His fear resulted in that. It was sadly a self-fulfilling prophecy. In what to many is such a happy moment in their lives, in Brian and Gabby's, it was in this happy moment that the future was leaked and foretold. It ended when Brian decided it would end, his way, and he tried to control events and the narrative thereafter, which is just further evidence of his coercive control. So to conclude this series, Gabby's case really highlights that we must do more to identify the signs of coercive control and domestic abuse far earlier, particularly amongst 16 to 24-year-olds. Gabby's family and friends are all united in this, And it's the one thing all family members say to me after their loved one is brutally murdered. If only we had met you before, Laura. Well, Crime Analyst is my way of getting my knowledge out there and meeting you all, and I'm putting it on blast. It's up to all of us to play our part. You can play yours by talking about coercive control and passing on this knowledge to others. Share Crime Analyst with everyone. I know many of you have and will continue to do so, So please keep doing that. And of course it goes without saying, police and other professionals must be trained. They must also play their part. Every professional agency and organisation that comes into contact with domestic abuse victims and abusers, so that's everyone, every business and every organisation must be trained. You see, the simple fact is that if Gabby had been identified as the victim, she would have been taken to the women's shelter. Specialist advocates would have been able to speak freely with Gabby in more detail away from Brian. They most likely would have understood the power and control dynamics, Brian's power and control over Gabby. It would have given her a safe space and a supportive environment to breathe, to shower, to think and get respite. Perhaps then she may have realised that Brian was an abuser and his behaviour was not okay. Now, there's no guarantee, of course, that Gabby would have ended the relationship as a consequence. She may not have left then, but she might have left in the future. Or she may have driven straight home or asked to be picked up by her father. But remember, leaving is a process and the most dangerous time for a woman is when she's leaving. It's when she's most at risk of being harmed or killed by a controlling man. Because if I can't have you, no one will. I said it takes women seven times to successfully leave the male abuser. Well, some stay because they know it's too dangerous to leave. Or they feel they can't. They feel they need the abuser. They're dependent on them. And they cannot cope without them. Because that's what they've been told, after all, time and time again. But they might feel like that now. But it will change. And they need your support and your help when that time comes. And of course, the law must change. Criminalising coercive control signals that coercive control is not okay. It signals it's a crime. It signals that men must change their behaviour. It signals that training is needed and that this is an important issue and that women and children matter. We urgently need a coercive control law here in America, a federal law. 
And you know, I was recently asked what the biggest barrier is here in America to that happening. And I'm going to share with you what it is, in my opinion, because it's shocking. Let me start by saying that more than 1,500 victims have completed my Victims Voice Survey here in America, and 99% answered saying that they want a coercive control law. They want coercive control to be criminalized. And a big thank you if you've completed that survey, and if you've also signed the petition. And if you'd like to complete the survey and sign the petition, the links are in the show notes. So that's 99%. Well, funnily enough, a similar survey was undertaken in California by Alison Messenger from Genesis after we brought in coercive control into family law. 84% of victims who answered said they want coercive control added to the penal code. So for me, it's clear what victims want. However, here in California, I worked with Senator Rubio and Deborah Newell and others on the coercive control law after Dirty John, And it was the professionals who put the brakes on it. They didn't support it. They said they weren't ready for it. Yes, you heard that right. The professionals who work in the domestic abuse sector, they're the ones who said that they weren't ready. That's the truth bomb. That's the reality of what's going on right now. And I still can't get my head around it. It's insane to me. And you know what? It's not just California. I heard the same thing amongst agencies and professionals in New York when we tried to progress a coercive control law there. It's ironic, isn't it, that those who say that they advocate on behalf of the victims are the ones that have been pushing back and stopping progress. They feel they're not ready for it, yet victims disagree. Well, you know what? Victims don't have the luxury of debating whether we're ready or not for it. That's a privilege. And that's a privilege that they don't have. Victims desperately need it. Their lives and their children's lives depend on it. Early identification, intervention and prevention are key. And the murder stats speak for themselves. And I'm going to remind you, four to five women are murdered every day here by a current or former male partner. If they report to police, and many do, only the physical behaviour is deemed relevant in the eyes of the law. And only a solo incident, a solo event, is prosecuted which means that the totality of the non-physical behaviour, that whole pattern and repeat behaviour is missed. The 1,000 cuts before are ignored, along with all the opportunities for intervention and prevention. We also know through Lundy Bancroft's work and others that prison is effective for coercive controllers. And we know coercive control correlates significantly with serious harm and homicide, both femicide and familicide. By the time it turns physical, it's too late for many. We also know an incident-based model and a violence-based model does not work. We've been doing it for long enough now. It doesn't work. Wake up, everyone. What we're doing is not working for victims. It's time coercive control is made visible and laws must be updated to reflect women and children's experience of abuse. Currently, coercive control is beyond the arm of the law. We have to change this. For Gabby, for all the women and children that have been murdered and all of those who've been seriously harmed. And I'm going to end here. And of course, with the pending lawsuits, there'll be more to say about Gabby's case. I know it's been a lot. I hope you found this series moving, informative, eye-opening, uncomfortable and angry-making. 
It's the only way real change happens. And like I said, I'm not here to tell gratuitous sensationalist stories in a 40 minute bite. I'm here to be the voice of those who no longer have a voice, to tell their stories, to educate, and hopefully help their families and move the needle to create real change in their loved ones' names. And in the process of crime analyst, I've found a wonderful tribe of new crime analysts who are activists. And you're not just riding shotgun with me, you're working alongside me in the crime analyst intelligence cell. So thank you. I'm grateful to each and every one of you. And I can't wait for you to join me next week back in the intelligence cell on a big case that you've heard about, but you might not know about the new investigation relating to the case. Well, the psychopath at the centre of it, which I was part of. I'm going to tell you all about it next time, and you're going to want to hear all the details, the micro and the macro. So until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.